Welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Well, Father, we give you thanks first. Again, I truly pray that I'm able to communicate just by these readings some of what you've been impacting my own spirit with this last week. Holy Spirit, as always, I really do acknowledge that you're the only true teacher of the church. You're the only one that can impact a heart to the point where something changes, something switches flipped, and suddenly greater faith occurs and we begin alive. We we become more alive to you and what it means to have Christ in us as the hope of glory. So I give you thanks for today, Father, and I really do pray that we would have ears to hear that your spirit would take these things I'm going to read and <clears throat> and do something with them, that we would actually incline our ears this morning to hear with our spirit, not to hear with our head, but to hear with our spirit some of these incredible stories. In the name of Jesus Christ, I acknowledge you in all my ways, and I do thank you that you direct my paths in Jesus' name. Amen? Last Monday after church, after, you know, Easter, you know, uh, if you remember, like, when we finished the Easter message, I was sharing about, like many others have said, the, uh, the disciples, the 11 disciples, about how they were all martyred for their faith and how, uh, uh, you know, I made that mention, as again, that many people have said, would you die for something that was a lie? You know, these men experienced something incredibly real and valid, legitimate, to the point that they were ready to die for it. And... Uh, Anyhow, I have no idea why, but I was praying on Monday morning, and out of nowhere, the Lord prompted me to go back and read for the third or fourth time Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of you have never heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Raise your hand, just be honest with me. You've never, ever heard of it. Sinner. John Fox, 1517, he was born here um, in England, and... Um, God led him to research and study uh, the martyrs, those who have given their life for Christ and how strong they were during everything from <clears throat> the Roman emperors all the way from Nero on down and what have you. And so, it, anyhow, I began to read it afresh, and we had to read it when I was at school. But I just got blown away again by reading how these people died, how... Um, you know, they commanded them to recant their faith. In other words, to deny Christ, you know, over and over again and to worship pagan deities and what have you and how strong these men and women were. I mean, I'm only going to give you a few stories, but literally I'm just going to give you a history lesson today uh, just on that aspect. I'm going to teach on this again next Sunday, except next Sunday we're going to move from the Roman emperors to actually Britain, most of it, <clears throat> to the martyrs, the martyrdom that happened uh in this nation in particular because of the Catholic Church. Rome, you know, the Catholic, if you were a Protestant, if you even had a piece of paper, if you even said that you were a friend to somebody who was a prophet, pro, uh, Protestant, like when John Wycliffe, you know, 
translated the Bible into English, it upset all of the papal uh, priesthood. They it blew their minds. And if you even said you were a friend to a Protestant, just for that statement alone, they, they would burn you at the stake in many cases. And of course, here in London, I don't want to get ahead of myself because like I said, I'm going to talk about that part next week. But as you well know, I guess you know that in London, you know, there were thousands and thousands of people burned at the stake here in this, in this town. Most of them were burned at the stake at Smithfield Market, but they were burned at the stake right here in uh, Westminster and all over the place. But anyhow, so I'm actually going to just read some things because, again, it just, I, I begin to question myself. You know, we talk about faith, what faith is. And, you know, when you see the stuff that these people went through, like I said, I'm only going to give a few stories. But, I mean, having their children raped and slaughtered in front of them, but refusing, but didn't, for, I'm not going to deny Christ for any means. You, be, you begin to ask yourself, do I actually know anything about what real faith is? I will not, you know, just that statement, and it kept coming up in my spirit, you know, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will not bow. I will not bow to any God other than the one true God. Hallelujah. Amen. So anyhow, I'm just literally going to read. It's a PowerPoint. I've taken, like I said, just some of these things, but we're going to read. So if we can get the first one up there, it's the, it, I want you to, if you, it's going to, it's just these two scriptures, Hebrews. Let me just begin to read. This is just to give you a little beginning as we know in Hebrews 11. Aroused by faith, Moses, when he had grown to maturity and become great, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he preferred to share the oppression, to suffer the hardships and bear the shame of the people of God rather than to have the fleeting enjoyment of a sinful life. In other words, he made choices. He could have had it easy, but he didn't. He considered the contempt and the abuse and the shame born for the Christ, the Messiah who was to come, to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he looked forward, and this is something we all must do, we must look forward in a way to the reward, to the recompense. Motivated by faith, he left Egypt behind him. Egypt is a type of the world, remember. Motivated by faith, he left Egypt behind him, being unawed and undismayed by the wrath of the king, for he never flinched. I like that. For he never flinched, but he held staunchly to his purpose. He endured steadfastly as one who gazed on him who is invisible. And again, when we teach on some of the basics of faith, that's such a strong statement. To be able to look at the invisible, to see the unseen. Then you jump down further in that chapter, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 35. It says, Some women received again their dead by a resurrection. Others were tortured to death with clubs, refusing to accept release offered on the terms of denying their faith so that they might be resurrected to a better life. Others had to suffer the trial of mocking and scourging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were lured with tempting offers to renounce their faith. They were sawn asunder. Isaiah was one that was cut in half, you know, put in a log and cut in half. They were slaughtered by the sword. While they were alive, they had to go about wrapped in the skins of sheep and goats, utterly destitute, oppressed, cruelly treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, roaming over the desolate places and the mountains, and living in caves and caverns and holes of the earth. 
And all of these, though they won divine approval by means of their faith, did not receive the fulfillment of what was promised because God had us in mind and had something better and greater in view for us so that these heroes and heroines of faith should not come to perfection apart from us before we could join them. Hallelujah. So that's just some scripture to show some of this. But now I'm just going to begin to read. And again, you have to give me the benefit of the doubt. I've, you know, it's, there's so much more detail in the book, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, than just this. But I, these are the ones I felt to read. So if we've got the first one up there, the third persecution, this is under Trajan, uh, the emperor of Rome, Trajan, A.D. 108. In this persecution suffered the blessed martyr Ignatius. Now, again, this is written in 1540, so the English, the way it's worded, the grammar and such, be aware of that. In this persecution suffered the blessed martyr Ignatius, who is held in famous reverence among very many. This Ignatius was appointed to the bishopric of Antioch next after Peter in succession, the apostle Peter. Some do say that he, being sent from Syria to Rome because he professed Christ, was given to the wild beast to be devoured. It is also said of him that when he passed through Asia, being under the most strict custody of his keepers, he strengthened and confirmed the churches through all the cities as he went, both with his exhortations and preaching of the word of God. Accordingly, having come to Smyrna, he wrote to the church at Rome, exhorting them not to use means for his deliverance from martyrdom, lest they should deprive him of that which he most longed and hoped for. Now, this is his quote at the end. Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing, the visible or invisible things, so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me, be it so. Only may I win Christ Jesus. And when he was sentenced to be thrown to the beast, such as the burning desire that he had to suffer, that he spake what time he heard the lions roaring. In other words, when they released the lions, he said, I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. Hallelujah. You know, good statement. Just like you and I would say, right? The lions are coming to eat you and you're going, hallelujah. I'm going to be the bread of Christ. Fourth persecution. Again, there's tons of different martyrs, but these are some... Fourth persecution under Marcus Aurelius Antonius, AD 162. The cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astounded at the intrepidity of the sufferers. And again, throughout this, you see that these people went to their death with such fortitude, such strength, such calmness, and in so many cases, singing, happy, smiling, while unspeakable things were done to their body. I mean, the over and over it talks about being torn with hooks, cut with bodkins, which were like a piercing thing, knives stretched on, bar you know, like we have barbecue grills. They had large grates, which they would heat hot coals under, and they would then lay your naked body on that, and then they would have sharp points come on the above, and there's all these, these guys on cooking, slowly but surely, just cooking and singing songs the whole time. It would be a bit different than our worship service. But all I know is there's something in here. Let me keep reading. Um, the cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the intrepidity, the strength of the sufferers. 
Some of the martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns, nails, sharp shells, etc., upon their points. Other were scourged, scourged means being whipped, until their sinews and veins lay bare. And after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were destroyed by the most terrible deaths. Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beast on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans become converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, hearing that persons were seeking for him, escaped, but was discovered by a child. In other words, a child finally. After feasting the guards who apprehended him, that means he fed the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. It was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned and burned in the marketplace. The proconsul then urged him, now this is in other words, they'd already burnt him, and the proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee, reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? At the stake to which he was only tied but not nailed as usual, as he assured them that he would stand unmovable, the flames on their kindling the faggots, remember faggots were this were what they called all the wood and the, the limbs that were put to burn. As he assured them that he would stand immovable, the flames on their kindling the faggots encircled his body like an arch without touching him. And the executioner on seeing this was ordered to pierce him with the sword when so great a quantity of blood flowed out as to extinguish the fire. But his body at the instigation of the enemies of the gospel, especially the Jews, was ordered to be consumed in the pile and the request of his friends who wished to give it Christian burial rejected. They nevertheless collected his bones and as much as his remains as possible and caused them to be decently interred. Then I just put this statement in there as I was writing. Christianity, and amongst all of this, one of the things that's amazing is as all the Roman emperors did their best to suppress Christianity, they wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to destroy it. But this is the thing about something that's truth. You can't destroy truth. Truth always increases. So the more they tried to destroy the church, the stronger the church became. You have to understand why I'm trying to share some of this this Sunday and next Sunday is because I want you to understand this is why you and I are going to understand what it means to make a real commitment to Christ. You will never go wrong. But to think that you'll not endure some pain or some suffering along the way is crazy. We will be persecuted for our faith. Your children, those of us that are my age, but your children, your grandchildren, you, they will enter. I mean, there's so much stuff I'd like to communicate from the book of Revelation or what have you that's just around the corner and remarkable scientific issues that are happening in the earth today. Julie and I watched the program just two nights ago. I don't know if anybody watched on God TV this program about transhumanism. You ever heard of transhumanism? Where they're actually, you know, genetic, through genetic coding. It's, you know how they say truth is stranger than fiction? But, you know, the British Medical Association says that, you know, they guarantee you that there are people around the world right now that are genetically working to create animal DNA and merge it with human DNA to create superhumans, just like the movies. They're already, you know, we already know that in medicine, they've already, you know, they can develop and grow a human ear on the back of a rat. You can see that on Google. You can Google that on YouTube and on human ear so that they can replace a human ear. But they're genetically 
working to create like people with gills so that you can breathe underwater. All of that's going to be possible in the future. Uh, all manner of things. But of course, the issue is the negative, what they're going to do with this is insanity. I mean, you know, the issue is making people genetically before creativity, before a, uh, before a, a woman's egg is fertilized, they actually have the they have the way now through nanotechnology, you know, finite microbiology, to alter this, this lady's egg before it's fertilized and to all alter a male's sperm before it actually engages to the point that from that point forward, they won't have to genetically change somebody. It will be in the DNA. In other words, you will have a whole new type of human being. And the way they speak of it, you will cease being human as we understand it because you're going to begin to move forth in a whole other type of creation. And I mean, uh, it's what's, what's right. And they, uh, the prop, most of you are too young. Have you ever heard of Dr. Moreau's Island, the book about Moreau, M-O-R? He was a man who created, it was a, it was a fiction about men uh, this doctor who was in, like an insane doctor who created half beast, half half humans. And the British Medical Association, in their writings already, say that they'd have no doubt whatsoever that there are people in jungles and people around incredibly sophisticated scientists that are already mating animals with human beings, human subjects, and creating subspecies of people. Now that... This is something that's happening now. It's not fiction. And I'm just saying our faith, we need to understand what's coming so that we understand why now our faith is more than a formula. Our faith is more than quoting Mark 11, 22, 23. And if we are people that get upset because of a hangnail, you're going to have a really tough time in the future. And it is, I've said it before, but I watched this one thing and I really appreciated these two professors. They said, they used the same words that I said over and over again. They said 99% of the church is not preparing the people for what's actually coming. They have no idea, no cognition whatsoever about what's really happening. But anyhow, and that's again what prompted me to go back and speak reading just to show what kind of faith these people had. And I put down here again, Christianity increased amazingly in the midst of all these persecutions, for the heathen temples began to be forsaken and the Christian churches thronged. What kind of faith must they have possessed for Christianity to increase and increase in the face of almost certain death? Would they have lived like this if Jesus was a myth? Think about this. These people are being thrown to beasts, tortured unbelievably. Would you do that for a lie? Okay, keep going. Felicitas, an illustrious Roman lady of a considerable family and the most shining virtues, was a devout Christian. She had seven sons whom she educated with the most exemplary piety. Genarius, the eldest, was scourged and pressed to death with weights. That literally means just that they put them on a flat thing and kept putting weights on them until they died, suffocated. Felix and Philip, the next two, had their brains dashed out with clubs. 
Silvanus IV was murdered by being thrown from a precipice, and the three younger sons, Alexander, Vitalis, and Martio, were, were beheaded. The mother was beheaded with the same sword as the three latter. The fifth persecution, commencing with Severus, A.D. 192. Perpetua, a married lady of about 22 years. Those who suffered with her were Felicitas, a married lady, big with child at the time of her being apprehended, and Revocatus, a catechumen, forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce that, catechumen of Carthage and a slave. The names of other prisoners destined to suffer upon this occasion were Saturnius, Secundulus, and Satur. On the day appointed for their execution, they were led to the amphitheater. Satur, Saturnius, and Revocatus were ordered to run the gauntlet between the hunters, or such as had the care of the wild beasts. The hunters being drawn up in two ranks, they ran between and were severely lashed as they passed. Felicitas and Perpetua were stripped in order to be thrown to a mad bull, which made his first attack upon Perpetua, who stunned her. He then darted at Felicitas and gored her dreadfully, but not killing them. The executioner did that office with a sword. Revocatus and Satyr were destroyed by wild beasts. Saturnius was beheaded and Secundulus died in prison. These executions were on 205, the 8th day of March. The seventh persecution under Decius, A.D. 249, Julian, a native of Cilicia, as we are informed by St. Chrysostom, was seized upon for being a Christian. He was put into a leather bag together with a number of serpents and scorpions and in that condition thrown into the sea. Peter, a young man, amiable for the superior qualities of his body and mind, was beheaded for refusing to sacrifice to Venus. He said, I am astonished you should sacrifice to an infamous woman whose debaucheries even your own historians record and whose life consisted of such actions as your laws would punish. No, I shall offer the true God the acceptable sacrifice of praises and prayers. Optimus, the proconsul of Asia, on hearing this, ordered the prisoner to be stretched upon a wheel by which all his bones were broken, and then he was sent to be beheaded. This was a daily occurrence, okay? Nicomachus, being brought before the proconsul as a Christian, was ordered to sacrifice to the pagan idols. Nicomachus replied, I cannot pay that respect to devils, which is only due to the Almighty. This speech so enraged the proconsul that Nicomachus was put to the rack. After enduring the torments for a time, he recanted, but scarcely had he given this proof of his frailty that he fell into the greatest agonies, dropped down on the ground, and expired immediately. Denisa, a young woman of only 16 years of age who beheld this terrible judgment, suddenly exclaimed, Oh, unhappy wretch, why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? Optimus, hearing this, called to her, and Denisa, avowing herself to be a Christian, she was beheaded by his order soon after. Trifle and Respicius, two eminent men, were seized as Christians and imprisoned at Nice. Their feet were pierced with nails. They were then dragged through the streets, scourged, torn with iron hooks, scorched with lighted torches, and at length beheaded February 1st, 251. Agatha, a Sicilian lady, was not more remarkable for her personal and acquired endowments than her piety. Her beauty was such that Quintian, a governor of Sicily, became enamored of her and made many attempts upon her chastity without success. In order to gratify his passions with the greater conveniency, he put the virtuous lady into the hands of Aphrodica, a very infamous and licentious woman. 
This wretch tried every artifice to win her to the desired prostitution, but found all her efforts were vain, for her chastity was impregnable, and she well knew that virtue alone could procure true happiness. Think about the strength of this woman. Aphrodite acquainted Quintian with the inefficiency, the inefficacy of her endeavors, who enraged to be foiled in his designs, changed his lust into resentment. On her confessing that she was a Christian, he determined to gratify his revenge as he could not his passion. Pursuant to his orders, she was scourged, burnt with red-hot irons, torn with sharp hooks. Having borne these torments with admirable fortitude, she was next laid naked upon live coals, intermingled with glass, and then, back, then being carried back to prison, she expired on February 5th. I forgot to put in the paragraph there about how she was singing the whole time she was on the coals. Lucy, would you be singing the whole time you were on the coals? Oh, well. The Eighth Persecution under Valerian, A.D. 257. At Utica, a most terrible tragedy was exhibited. 300 Christians were, by orders of the proconsul, placed around a burning lime kiln. The kiln where they made, you know, all manner of like vessels of uh, clay. A pan of coals and incense being prepared, they were commanded either to sacrifice to Jupiter or to be thrown into the kiln. Unanimously refusing, they bravely jumped into the pit and were immediately suffocated. Again, I know I'm going fast and all I'm doing is reading, but every Christian on the planet at some point is supposed to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. In this nation and in Europe, when the Protestant religion came up and the wars began to happen between Catholicism and that, next to the Bible, which is, remember, chained to a pulpit, there was a smaller chain, and, and on that chain was, it was Fox's Book of Martyr. In every major church in Great Britain and Europe, after John Fox's death, it was that important. Because they wanted people to understand the strength of what real faith looked like. The ninth persecution under Aurelian. This, I thought this was amazing. This is called the Theban Legion. These were Roman soldiers. In the year of Christ, 286, a most remarkable affair occurred. A legion of soldiers consisting of 6,666 men contained none but Christians. In other words, the entire legion was Christians. This legion was called the Theban Legion because the men had been raised in Thebius. They were quartered in the east until the emperor, Maximian, ordered them to march to Gaul to assist him against the rebels of Burgundy. They passed the Alps into Gaul under the command of Mauritius, Candidus, and Exupernus, their worthy commanders, and at length joined the emperor. Maximian, about this time, ordered a general sacrifice at which the whole army was to assist, and likewise he commanded that they should take the oath of allegiance and swear at the same time to assist in the extirpation of Christianity, in other words, to get rid of Christianity in Gaul. Alarmed at these orders, each individual, 6,666 people, alarmed at these orders, each individual of the Theban legion absolutely refused either to sacrifice or take the oaths prescribed. This so greatly enraged Maximian that he ordered the legion to be decimated, deca meaning ten, that is, every tenth man to be selected from the rest and put to the sword. This bloody order having been put in execution, those who remained alive were still inflexible when a second decimation took place and every tenth man of those living was put to death. The second severity made no more impression than the first had done. The soldiers preserved their fortitude and their principles, 
But by the advice of their officers, they drew up a royal remonstrance to the emperor. This, it might have presumed, would have softened the emperor, but it had a contrary effect. For enraged at their perseverance and unanimity, he commanded that the whole legion should be put to death, which was accordingly executed by the other troops, who cut them to pieces with their swords. And again, I got a vivid imagination, and I just think about an entire legion of soldiers, and you're thinking about every person, and you're sitting here like right now, you know, I wish we could make it more real. You know, maybe I should bring Keith up here or somebody up here and get hot irons and start putting them up. But every tenth person in here we kill, okay? And now will you recant your faith? No? Okay, then we're going to go through who's left. Every tenth person now is going to die. And still these people, to the point they said, no, we will not renounce our Christianity. In other words, I'm beginning to think what faith looks like is a little bit different than some of the stuff that some of us have thought. Now this is one Alban, from whom St. Albans in Hertfordshire received its name, was the first British martyr. Great Britain had received the gospel of Christ from Lucius, the first Christian king, but did not suffer from the rage of persecution for many years after. He was originally a pagan, but converted by a Christian ecclesiastic named Amphibolus, whom he sheltered on account of his religion. The enemies of Amphibolus, having intelligence of the place where he was secreted, came to the house of Alban in order to facilitate his escape. When the soldiers came, he offered himself up as the person they were seeking for. The deceit being detected, the governor ordered him to be scourged, and then he was sentenced to be beheaded, June 22nd. The venerable Bede assures us that upon this occasion, the executioner suddenly became a convert to Christianity and entreated permission to die for Alban or with him. In other words, these men, when they saw the strength of these people who were about to die, they were so moved by the peace that they had. By and so many, I mean, I'm living out so much. That there was, I, I, I need, I'm trying to find out which psalm. There's a psalm that some 80% of all these people would sing. One of the psalms before they went to the death. And the, and the executioners themselves would be so moved by the fact that they simply weren't afraid. That again, like it says here, many of them gave their lives to God right then. Anyhow, uh, let me see. Venerable Bede assures us that upon this occasion, the executioner suddenly became a convert to Christianity and entreated permission to die for Alban or with him. Obtaining the latter request, they were beheaded by a soldier who voluntarily undertook the task of executioner. This happened on the 22nd of June, A.D. 287 at Verulam, now St. Albans in Hertfordshire, where a magnificent church was erected to his memory about the time of Constantine the Great. The edifice being destroyed in the Saxon Wars was rebuilt by Ulfa, king of Mercy, and a monastery erected adjoining to it, some remains of which are still visible. Quentin was a Christian and a native of Rome, but determined to attempt the propagation of the gospel in Gaul with one Lucian. They preached together in Amiens, after which Lucian went to Bomaris, where he was martyred. Quentin remained in Picardy and was very zealous in his ministry. Being seized upon as a Christian, he was stretched with pulleys, until his joints were dislocated. His body was then torn with wire scourges and boiling oil and pitch poured upon his naked flesh. Lighted torches were then applied to his sides and armpits. And after he'd been thus tortured, he was remanded back to prison and died of the barbarities he'd suffered October 31st, 287. His body was then sunk in the Somme. The 10th persecution under Diocletian, AD 303. Victor was a Christian of good family at Marseille in France. 
He spent a great part of the night in visiting the afflicted and confirming the weak, which pious work he could not consistently with his own safety perform in the daytime, and his fortune he spent in relieving the distresses of poor Christians. He was at length, however, seized by the emperor Maximian's decree, who ordered him to be bound and dragged through the streets. During the execution of this order, he was treated with all manner of cruelties and indignities by the enraged populace. Remaining still inflexible, his courage was deemed obstinacy. Being by order stretched upon the rack, he turned his eyes towards heaven and prayed to God to endure him with patience, after which he underwent the tortures with most admirable fortitude. After the executioners were tired with inflicting torments on him, he was conveyed to a dungeon. In his confinement, he converted his jailers, named Alexander, Felician, and Longinius. This affair coming to the ears of the emperor, he ordered them immediately to be put to death, and the jailers were accordingly beheaded. Victor was then again put to the rack, unmercifully beaten with batons, and again sent to prison. Being a third time examined concerning his religion, he persevered in his principles. A small altar was then brought, and he was commanded to offer incense upon it immediately. Fired with indignation at the request. Now think about this dude's gone through all this on the stretch, all his joints pulling out, fire, skirts, hooks, and this dude is still strong. He gets, he gets mad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he was... Uh, fired with indignation at the request to burn incense on this thing to a pagan god, he boldly stepped forward and with his foot overthrew both altar and idol. This so enraged the emperor Maximian, who was present, that he ordered the foot with which he kicked the altar to be immediately cut off. And Victor was thrown into a mill then and crushed to pieces with the stones, AD 303. Maximus, governor of Cilicia, being at Tarsus, three Christians were brought before him, their names were Terracus, an aged man, Probus, and Andronicus. After repeated tortures and exhortation to recant, give up their faith, they at length were ordered for execution. Being brought to the amphitheater, several beasts were let loose upon them, but none of the animals, though hungry, would touch them. This happened over and over again. The keeper then brought out a large bear that had that very day destroyed three men, but this voracious creature and a fierce lioness both refused to touch the prisoners. Finding the, design of, finding the design of destroying them by the means of wild beasts ineffectual, Maximus ordered them to be slain on, by the sword on October 11th, AD 303. This happened over and over again, too, like Daniel and the lions did. Over and over again, these guys walked in such strength that God allowed them to live to the point that it blew the minds of all the spectators. They knew these men and women were different from any others they'd ever, ever seen brought to executions. Romanus, a native of Palestine, was deacon at the church of Caesarea at the time of the commencement of Diocletian's persecution. Being condemned for his faith at Antioch, he was scourged, put to the rack, his body torn with hooks, his flesh cut with knives, his face scarified, his teeth beaten from their sockets, and his hair plucked up by the roots. Soon after, he was ordered to be strangled. <laughs> You go through all that, you know, and then the dude's still alive, and then they strangle him. In the year 304, when the persecution reached Spain, Dacian, the governor of Tarragona, ordered Valerius the bishop and Vincent the deacon to be seized, loaded with irons, and imprisoned. The prisoners being firm in their resolution, Valerius was banished, and Vincent was racked, his limbs dislocated, his flesh torn with hooks, and he was laid on a gridiron, which had not only a fire placed under it, 
but spikes at the top which ran into his flesh. These torments neither destroying him nor changing his resolutions. He was remanded to prison and confined in a small, loathsome, dark dungeon strewed with sharp flints and pieces of broken glass where he died January 22nd, 304. His body was thrown into the river. Timothy, I've only got a few more. Hallelujah, keep smiling. Timothy, a deacon of Mauritania, and Mora, his wife, had not been united together by the bands of wedlock above three weeks when they were separated from each other by the persecution. Timothy, being apprehended as a Christian, was carried before Arianius, the governor of Thebai, who, knowing that he had keeping had the keeping of the Holy Scriptures, commanded him to deliver them up to be burnt, to which he said, Had I children, I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than part with the word of God. The governor, being much incensed at this reply, ordered his eyes to be put out with red-hot irons, saying, The book should at least be useless to you, for you shall not see to read them. His patience under the operation was so great. In other words, again, it says he simply stood there without screaming, without yelling, while they put his eyes out with a red-hot poker. Um, the book should at least be useless to you. His patience under the operation was so great that the governor grew more exasperated. He therefore, in order if possible, to overcome his fortitude, ordered him to be hung up by his feet with a weight tied about his neck and a gag in his mouth. In this state, Mora, his wife, tenderly urged him for her sake to recant. But when the gag was taken out of his mouth, instead of consenting to his wife's entreaties, he greatly blamed her mistaken love and declared his resolution of dying for the faith. The consequence was that Mora resolved to imitate his courage and fidelity and either to accompany or follow him to glory. The governor, after trying in vain to alter her resolution, ordered her to be tortured, which was executed with great severity. After this, Timothy and Mora were crucified near each other, A.D. 304. Nicander and Marcion, two eminent Roman military officers, were apprehended on account of their faith. As they were both men of great abilities in their profession, the utmost means were used to induce them to renounce Christianity. But these endeavors being found ineffectual, they were beheaded. What happened? Hmm? Oh, we'll keep going. In the kingdom of Naples, in the kingdom of Naples, several martyrdoms took place, in particular Januarius, Bishop of Beneventum, Socius, Deacon of Mazine, Proculus, another deacon, Eutyches and Acutius, two laymen, Festus, a deacon, and Desiderius, a reader, all on account of being Christians. They were condemned by the governor of Campania to be devoured by the wild beasts. The savage animals, however, would not touch them, so they were beheaded. Now, this next one is the final one I'm going to read to you. Quirinius, Bishop of Sicia, being carried before Matinius, the governor, was ordered to sacrifice to the pagan deities, agreeable to the edicts of very Roman emperors, various Roman emperors. The governor, perceiving his constancy, sent him to jail and ordered him to be heavily ironed, flattering himself that the hardships of the jail, some occasional tortures and the weight of change might overcome his resolution. Being decided in his principle, he was sent to Amantius, the principal governor of Pannonia, now Hungria, who loaded him with chains, carried him through the principal towns of the Danube, exposed him to ridicule wherever he went, 
arriving at length at Siberia and finding that Quirinius, Quirinius would not renounce his faith, listen to this. He ordered him to be cast into a river with a stone fastened about his neck. They have pictures. The stones are talking about as, about as big as this pulpit here. With the stone. They ordered him to be um, cast into a river with a stone about his neck. The sentence being put in execution, Quirinius floated about for some time. And exhorting the people in the most pious terms, he it says he preached for over an hour and a half. Well, he's got the stone. He just preached to the people floating. Da, 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 floating. But I love the way he finishes. He said, he said, Cornelius floated for some time and exhorting the people in the most pious terms, he concluded his admonition with this prayer. It is no new thing, O all-powerful Jesus, for thee, to, for thee to stop the course of rivers or to cause a man to walk upon the water as thou didst thy servant Peter. The people have already seen the proof of thy power in me. Grant me now to lay down my life for thy sake, O my God. I'm pronouncing the last words. He immediately sank and died. His body was afterwards taken up and buried by some pious Christians. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, I just cracked me. I just get a picture of this dude. He's floating in the river in this big old stone, and he just preaches for an hour and a half. And all these people are by the river watching him. And after he gets done preaching, he says, well... Okay, it's no big deal. This is no big deal. I mean, people know, you know, Jesus walked on the water. Peter walked on the water. So I've had enough. I'm going to go now. See you. Check out. Boom. <laughs> but I, I, like I said, uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what Fox's Book of Barnard tells. There's all these incredible stories. 13-year-old girls. Uh, the faith that they had how they, before they were thrown to lions or before they had their parents torn with hooks and stuff in front of them. And just, I will not renounce my God. And see, to deny Christ. And see, I, I don't want, I will, you guys know me, I would never put anybody under condemnation. But see, think about how easily, well, let me put it, let me just say it. You know that every time we knowingly disobey him, we're actually denying Christ. We're actually letting something else speak louder and stronger to us than this Christ that we say we serve. These men and women had something in them. Now, it brings to me a whole other revelation of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith, real faith, my friends, has substance. I mean, there's something in the heart of these men and women that was so strong that death meant, I don't know that we could say it meant nothing to them, but they simply, it was, the conviction was so strong. Like the guy being hung upside down with a gag in his mouth and his wife saying, darling, 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 please, 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 Timothy, recant, recant your faith. And he, instead of he gets angry at her and says, how can you do this? How could you say that? No, I will never renounce my faith. And then she joined on him and the both of them getting crucified. But over and over again, the stories of this, and you know, of course, Nero, some of the most famous talk, Nero would take people, of course, I'm sure you've heard this. He would take Christians by the hundreds. And in those days, a shirt was like a tunic with a collar that wore, went all the way down to your ankles. And he would have these he would have them have these Christians 
put these put shirts on them, and then the entire shirt was uh, just soaked with wax, a heavy wax mixed with a perfume. I mean, all the way down until their bodies were just stiff like that. Then he put them on places on stakes all the way around his garden where he held his feast and lit them so that they might be human torches while their friends feasted. That happened over and over and over again. Hundreds, thousands, thousands upon thousands upon thousands from the days of the apostles who, like I said, would not give their life for a lie. This went on all the way from Christ's crucifixion, you know, A.D. 1, all the way through up to the 1500s, actually the 1400s, 1300s, when there was, when there, well, there was still an emperor, but the emperor then had no, not as near authority as the pope in Rome. And the Pope began to have the great authority. But anyhow, we're going to go to that next week and show some more of these stories as far as from, in particular, Britain and the statements these men and women made as they were being burnt at the stake and what have you. I'm just trying to suggest to you that as Christians, God wants us to have real conviction and that there's a great difference between being a member of a church having a card in your wallet or something or a baptismal certificate and walking with something, a conviction that's so real that when the temptation to sin comes, of course, my only response is to say, of course not. No. Why would I bow to that? Why would I bow to that? I will not bow. Why don't you just say this with me? I will not bow. Just close your eyes and say that a few times. Let it be real. I will not bow. I will not bow to anything or anyone but Christ Jesus, my Lord. I will not bow. So, Father, my prayer today, again, this is just a history lesson I know. But that again, somehow, some way something might start, be ignited, begin afresh. Where this wouldn't be a story. This wouldn't be uh, something that where they just think is a visual from a science fiction movie. But today that we all, myself included, would understand the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who named the name of Christ who would not bow under the most horrific tortures, the most horrific situations, unspeakable things done to their bodies, to their children, to their spouses. But something was so much more real to them than the pain that they simply would not bow. I will not bow. I choose to bow to Jesus Christ. I choose him to be my one and true God, my one and true Savior. I choose to let his death for me speak louder than any other temptation. In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, open our eyes. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. 
For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 